Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up, how the pandemic continues to affect the well-being of Georgia's children. From virtual schooling to housing, we'll discuss the annual Kids Count Report. Also, it's called John Lewis's Last Literary Testament. A new book reveals the late congressman and civil rights champion's final reflections on justice, faith, and mentorship. It's titled Carry On, Reflections for a New Generation. Those conversations are next, but we'll begin with this. More messaging from the White House about this latest surge of COVID-19 and the new deadlier excuse me, that's their word, uh, variant, the Delta variant, and urging folks to get vaccinated. So we heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Rochelle Olinsky, and U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy. They were all in a tennis today in a press briefing. One fact that has been proven time and time again during this past year is that vaccines save lives. That's why 99.5% of COVID-19 deaths and 97% of hospitalizations are among the unvaccinated. It's also why nearly every death from COVID-19 is a preventable tragedy. And that is U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy. Now, meanwhile, school districts are gearing up for the fall semester and implementing mask or no mask guidelines. That includes the Atlanta Public Schools. A statement on the district's website reads in part, quote, Atlanta Public Schools will implement a universal mask wearing protocol in all schools and buildings. The district also included considerations for the mask mandate, including that children under 12 years do not have the option of being vaccinated and remain vulnerable to contracting and spreading the disease. And a note of disclosure, as always, WAB's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. Now I want to go back to that COVID-19 press briefing heard earlier. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky was asked about the timeline for an authorized vaccine for children. We're looking at the clinical trial data now. We're waiting for the clinical trial data to come in. The approval of the data and the authorization will be a regulatory FDA decision. So after we have seen the clinical trial data, I have not seen them myself. After we will see them, then then they will go to the FDA for the uh, regulatory process of authorization. Now here in Georgia, COVID hospitalizations have grown to more than 1,000 in Georgia. And state data reveals the vast majority of those patients are not vaccinated. There have been only 88 cases so far of fully vaccinated folks needing hospitalization this entire year in Georgia. Now, that's out of the more than 4 million people who have, rece- who have received a vaccine. Now, the death rate from COVID for vaccinated individuals in Georgia currently stands at 0.002%. That's why health officials are urging the non-vaccinated population to get a shot, especially as the most dangerous Delta variant keeps emerging in the state. And the hospitals with the highest COVID patients percentage in Georgia 
are in rural areas with lower vaccination rates. And finally... Film and TV production continues to be big business here in Georgia. State officials are just absolutely beside themselves as Georgia set a new record of $4 billion in spending on film and TV production in the fiscal year 2021. Factors in the spike? Well, they say pent-up demand from Georgians stuck at home during the COVID-19 pandemic and the extra costs on set to keep workers tested and socially distant. Lee Thomas is the director of the Georgia Film Office. They were renting more space, they were hiring more people, you know, more drivers, more cars, more everything, it seemed like, in addition to, you know, testing and safety protocols that they, you know, extra cleaning, PPE, all of that. So it it did drive the cost up. And they say nearly 370 productions were filmed in the state in the fiscal year. By the way, did you know part of Black Panther Wakanda Forever is currently and production here in the region. Did you know that? Yep. It began last month, to be exact, right over at Pinewood Studios out in Fayetteville, Georgia. And look, y'all don't try and get on the set, the set because there's heavy security. We tried. This is Closer Look. I'm always ready to take a life again. You know I'll ride again. It's all the same. Tell me who's gonna see me from myself. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The CDC yesterday revealed life expectancy in the nation declined by a year and a half in 2020. As expected, the coronavirus is the main reason. Called the Provisional Life Expectancy Estimates for 2020, the report revealed that COVID-19 is behind the 74% of the decline in life expectancy from 78.8 years in 2019 to 77.3 years in 2020. And the virus continues to affect nearly every aspect of all of our daily lives, and that includes our youngest population, kids. The 32nd edition of the Annie E. Casey Foundation's Kids Count Data Book is now available, and it describes how children across the United States are faring before and during the coronavirus pandemic. And this this annual report also ranks states by several metrics. Now, last year, the report revealed that Georgia ranked number 38. Well, joining me again, as she always does to discuss this, Rebecca Wrights, Georgia's Kids Count Manager. She joins me again to dissect Georgia and share new information from the U.S. Census Bureau's Household Plus survey. Rebecca, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. 
You know, when we spoke last year, it was unclear, and obviously it still is, how long the coronavirus will impact all of us. Now, more than a year later, and you sort of talked about this, you predicted that, look, we still will have to use metrics as it relates to this this pandemic and the welfare of all of our kids. It's still, obviously, it's still a factor. Sure, absolutely. Um, So the data that goes into the annual ranking is from 2019. So it really paints a picture of how the state of Georgia was faring right before the pandemic hit. But it also, as you said, features data from the Household Pulse Survey, which reflects conditions for Georgia's children and families during the pandemic. Hmm. Rebecca, before we dig into that, I just want to get your thoughts on something, because there's a new study that just came out, was published in the Lancet Medical Journal, and it revealed that more than 1.5 million children globally now estimated to have lost at least one parent, custodial grandparent, or, you know, or a grandparent from COVID-19 during the pandemic. I think that really hits home how this its affected all of us. But when you think about kids, our youngest population, and how this pandemic has affected them from a mental aspect as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's a huge trauma on some of our most vulnerable children. Um, and we know that you know schools and caregivers are going to have a heavy lift um, as we kind of at least try to emerge from this pandemic. One thing we always worry about every year is summer learning loss, which is kind of the summer slide when kids often lose some educational gains during the summer months when they're not in school. And I mean, that's just going to be compounded for the last year and a half. So certainly um, both academic support and then mental and emotional support as well for our children. And for folks who may not be familiar with the kids count, let's just give them a snapshot of, first of all, I mentioned it was a 30-second edition. You know, you all have been doing Uh this for a while. And I imagine there are some metrics that have changed, obviously, throughout the decades. But give a snapshot of what you all are trying to, to gather here. And then what areas, what, I guess, quality of life factors are you all looking at? Sure, absolutely. Like you said, it is the 32nd edition. So we've been, these are long trend lines <laughs> that we're looking at here. Um, and so the good news is that if you look across, you know, 30 years and even compare us to 10 years ago, across most metrics, Georgia is doing better. Um, you know, our child poverty rate is the lowest it's been since the Great Recession. We find in 2019, the child poverty rate finally fell below 20% for the first time in a decade. Um, our, our More children were living in households with adults who have a full-time job. Fewer children were living in communities with a high housing cost burden. So we were seeing some, and if you look at overall um, educational metrics, have also improved over time. Um, Unfortunately, some of our health metrics actually have declined over time, specifically our low birth weight rate. But generally speaking, if you look at the long-term views, we are doing better. So when the, you know, when that inaugural report first came out, Mm -hmm. Georgia was 48th in the nation, which was Mm. unacceptable. We've now, we're now 38th, but we've kind of stalled at 38th for the past couple of years. And again, the ranking that we received this year is reflective of Georgia right before the pandemic. Um, So while we do have those wonderful data from the Household Pulse Survey that reflect pandemic conditions, we're not sure what our more kind of traditional measures that we've used for the past 32 years are going to look like. Are those gains that we've made over the past decades, are they going to be erased because of the pandemic? Absolutely. And I'm curious because now with 
the pandemic and the vaccines. And here's what we do know. We know that sure. certain states, and there are a few states here in the South, some states, neighbor states to Georgia, which have low vaccination rates, vaccination rates and now have a higher hospitalization and sadly sure. even some deaths. Are you all able to look at regions throughout the nation and see some continuing trends as well? And if so, what does that say to you? I mean, I've covered what we call the Southern Belt, you know, and all those different reports that come out that reveal states in the South maybe may have a higher percentage of folks with diabetes or what have you. Is that the same with the kids count? It really is. So, I mean, if you look at regions with high vaccination rates, they're also the states that tend to do really well in the kids count rankings. So this year, Massachusetts, just like almost every year, Massachusetts is number one. And you also see um, high vaccination rates. So it correlates, but it correlates with so many things. I mean, the same places where you see um, regions with struggling vaccination rates, those are all the re- so the regions that, like you said, have chronic health conditions. Mm-hmm. They have rural transportation and healthcare access issues. Um, They have much higher poverty rates than other areas. So it really, one thing we always say about data is that nothing exists in a vacuum. All of these factors work together and they talk to each other. So it's not surprising that we would see those kind of overlaps in these regions. And how do you all collect your data? Sure. So um, nationally, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, they pull these data together, mostly from the Census Bureau and a couple of educational progress measurements. And then here at the state level, we collect data from state agencies like the Department of Education, the Department of Public Health, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Um, So it's all from public data sources. And let's now focus on Georgia. And and by the way, folks, if you, you head to datacenter.kidscount.org, you can really you can filter this by not only by state, obviously by county, by school district, by congressional district. It's really fascinating. Let's talk about Georgia overall. Uh, your assessment, you said, you know, Georgia's gotten better over the years. But overall, let's just give sort of a assessment of where Georgia is right now in the rankings. Yeah, so I mean, year over year, we did see some um, kind of stalls on some of our educational progress we'd like to see. But again, a one year, these are long term trend lines. So a one year stall on maybe an educational progress measure doesn't necessarily merit, you know, hitting the panic button yet. Mm -hmm. But again, it's really important to look at it year over year. So we see the trends. So what I see is that Georgia has made improvements, but we still have a long way to go. Yes, our poverty rate went down and is the lowest it's been in a decade, but it's still higher than the national average. Yes, we've made some progress on educational indicators. We're still lagging national averages. Um, Same with our, you know, obesity rates and our low birth weight rates. So even though we may have, you know, either kind of plateaued on some things, we're still typically lagging the national average. So Georgia, while we've made progress, there is certainly a way to go. And we're really, I, you know, I would always say that investing in our people and the systems that affect people is the way to go. But now that we've seen, you know, the effects of the pandemic, I say that I'm hoping that that message resonates even stronger now, um, that investing in Georgians and the systems that affect them is what we have to do to move the wheel and the needle. And Rebecca, is it fair to say that obviously when you look at the well-being of Georgia's children, you start with the overall household. So you have to, one can imagine, well, this points to what the, it could be economic well-being or health well-being of that parent or the household. All that factors into Georgia's, the well-being quote of Georgia's children. 
Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's community level, it's multi-generational. It doesn't just start with a child. I mean, when you look at, for example, when we look at communities, you know, um, children living in communities with high poverty rates, that just doesn't speak to a single household. That speaks to the opportunities available in an overall community. And so Georgia has a higher than average rate of children living in high poverty areas. And that tells us that not all of our kids are getting the access to opportunities that they deserve. And for folks that are wondering, are we also just talking about more urban areas, rural areas? It's a combination of both because we've had this conversation before. You know, the the face of poverty is everyone when you think about Mm -hmm. it. There is nothing. There's no data set that tells you this is the face of poverty. It impacts everybody. It absolutely is. And I mean, rural and urban poverty might look different, but it absolutely is both. And there are probably different issues at play that factor into poverty levels in different areas. But I mean, you can't paint with a, you know, a broad brush. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's everyone and there are nuances. But again, all of these systems and factors really overlay with each other. It's not just one thing, because if it were just one thing, we could have fixed that one thing. Yeah, we'd have we'd have an answer solution, right? Right. I would have an answer for you right now. (laughs) The voice you hear is Rebecca Rice, Georgia's kid count kids count manager. And she joins me again to dissect Georgia and also share new information from the U.S. Census Bureau's household pulse survey. This is all part of the the data report. Let's talk about this, this household pulse survey. What's it all about? Sure. So it really sought to, they conducted it pretty regularly throughout 2020 and into 2021. So it's really current data. And it was asking people how they're faring. Do they have food on the table during the pandemic? Have they lost income? Are they worried about making their next rent or mortgage payment? Do their kids have what they need to do online school? And what Mm -hmm. we found in Georgia, we found that, you know, economically, one in five Georgians with children had little or no confidence that they could make their next mortgage or rent payment. Um, We had, I think, 14% uh, or 17% of students did not usually or always have access to a computer so that they could do distance learning. Um, They think about uh, one in five Georgians also reported food insecurity during the pandemic. So that tells us that even though up through 2019, we had been making some gains, Georgians and especially Georgians families with children mm-hmm. really faced obstacles in 2020 and into 2021. Um, some of the data from, you know, late March of 2021 started to look a little bit better in the household pulse survey. But what we saw overall was Georgians really struggling for more than a year. Uh, Rebecca, when you all receive that type of information based on a survey, and look, it's easy to say, well, we need to do more of this and we need to do more of that and, and not to bring politics into this. But it does give those who are policymakers, it does give them enough data to determine if they need to add more money to a particular area or add more resources or add more wraparound services, as we call sure. them. This is a perfect template for them to use. Yeah, like I said, I would always say that investing in the systems that affect children and families is the way to go. But I mean, if we've seen nothing else, I'm hoping that the lessons of the pandemic show us we need to be investing in education. We need to be investing in healthcare. We need to be investing in post-secondary opportunities and job training programs. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that that's the takeaway from policymakers and from, I mean, the private and public community, really. And how has this pandemic, you know, you talked about this last year when we have our annual conversation, but 
even with the information that you all are capturing now, and if you're, if you're capturing it now, it's still, it still, it may not change, you think, next year because of, or two years from now, because you're capturing this data and we're still in a pandemic. So right. th- someone listening may say, well, maybe we'll see, will the trend then change because things should be getting better? Or does it not necessarily work like that? We don't, I mean, honestly, I think we're not going to see the full effects of what happened for five to 10 years, not because the, really? you know, it just, how much will the data change? That said, we should, all the, most of the metrics that we're looking at today, will get new versions of those in about six months that will give us some idea as to whether those trends that were moving in the right direction were erased because of the pandemic. Five to 10 years, Rebecca? Well, I think that's how long it's going to take for us to really understand mm-hmm. the full impact of this. I mean, um, we're we're going through it day by day mm-hmm. and, you know, at this point, year by year. Um, and so the data will change in real time. But I think once we this is the big one of the biggest events that's happened really mm-hmm. in our history. And I think it's going to play out in the data over a number of years. I really do. And Rebecca, is it? I guess accurate to say that also when we break this down by race and ethnicity, it's still what the trend continues that it's black and brown households, black and brown kids, obviously kids from certain socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, maybe some kids living in in poverty in the rural areas. Has any demographics changed? Were there some sectors of the population that you all saw that either fared worse or, or got better? Sure. I would say, generally speaking, um, black and brown children were more vulnerable in the pandemic um, because of income inequality that already existed, because of access to education, high quality education that already existed. So a lot of the things that a lot of the disparities and gaps that we already knew existed played out with the pandemic as well. Um, In recent years, we actually have seen some narrowing of the gaps between Mm -hmm. um, white children and children of color in Georgia. Um, but we've never closed those gaps. That's just so that's also something that I think is really important to focus on as as we look at supporting children who needs the most because who is hurt the most mm-hmm. is really important to focus on. Rebecca, as we begin to wrap up, what stood out to you as you reviewed this data? Um, what stood out is that, again, we're doing at least as of 2019, we're doing better than we were which is good, but we'd really like to see faster progress. Um, I don't want to be sitting at 38th forever. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in theory, all the other states want to do better as well. But I'd really like to see Georgia become a leader in this region. And I think we have the ability to do that. Well, and when we we started the show and I did the the normal news brief, I talked about how one of the sectors like film and TV production was booming. You know, it's a billion dollar industry. Georgia's always viewed as the number one state to do business in. And and then you have a report like this and Georgia sitting at 38 as it relates right. to its well-being of children. You know, one right. would argue there's definitely an imbalance there. This, this state produces too much uh, money, in a sense, brings in too much revenue to be sitting at 38. Maybe it's not a fair assessment, you tell me. Well, I think we are, at least as of 2019, we were the largest state that had um, with the high, I think we were the only state that had 10 million or more population with a poverty rate over 20%. So um, Georgia does have resources that some of our neighbors might not have. Um, But yes, you're right. There is an imbalance in how those resources get translated. So again, I think investing in the systems that surround and support and affect our children and families, specifically our most vulnerable children and families, is how you move the needle on these numbers that we've been sitting at for so long. Investing in the system, that's a whole nother conversation, huh, Rebecca? 
It sure is. Rebecca Rice, Georgia's Kids Count Manager. And we've been talking about the annual, from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, the Kids Count Data Book, which is now available, 32nd edition. Rebecca, thank you so much as always. Every year we have this conversation, compelling information. Thank you so much as always. I'm looking forward to saying we're 37th at some point. (laughs) Come on, Georgia. (laughs) Come on. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Next Friday, Atlanta, in a citywide effort, will honor the late congressman and civil rights champion John Lewis. The day-long event is called Reimagine the Legacy, a tribute to the life and legacy of Congressman John Lewis. The downtown Atlanta's business community, along with civil rights leaders, grassroots organizations, and all these other important folks, will come together for a day in celebration and memory of Lewis. And that includes, at 11 a.m., church bells will ring throughout downtown for 80 seconds, initiating a community-wide moment of reflection, marking the day and time Congressman Lewis was laid to rest. By the way, WABE is a media partner and will have coverage. And John Lewis is a subject of my next conversation. A new book reveals the late congressman and civil rights leader his final reflections on justice, faith, and mentorship. It's titled Carry On, Reflections for a New Generation. A best-selling author in his own right, Kabir, Kabir Segal, worked with Lewis on the book, and he also wrote the afterword. And he joins me now. Kabir, welcome. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Rose. Pleasure to be here and to talk about the legend who is John Le- John Lewis. Let's begin here because, Kabir, following the death of Congressman Lewis, I spoke with a lot of folks. And I asked each, you know, just how do you sum up the lifelong work of John Lewis? And so now I put that question to you. Great question. I think in a word, it's humility. Humility is the legacy of John Lewis because um, he was someone who always believed that the message would carry the day. He would always tell me, don't worry about getting the credit. Make sure that you put the cause ahead of yourself. And he put that cause ahead of himself on that bridge in Selma Mm -hmm. on Bloody Sunday. He put that cause in front of himself when he was ahead of so many issues um, in the Congress. And so in writing this book with him, um, that was one message he wanted to, to put forth. He said, you know, young people today, oftentimes they may be egotistical. They may think, I want to be out there, make a name for myself. But mm-hmm. we all leave this earth. But it's the messages and the and the, the causes we fight for that, that carry on. And I think that's really important. And the humility, the, there's a section in humility in our book, and it's mm-hmm. the shortest section, actually, um, because he said there's not much to say, just... just uh, pay attention to other people and carry carry on the good work. And we're going to get to so many of those sections in just a moment. Uh, how did you come to know John Lewis? I've been blessed uh, my entire life. I grew up in Atlanta mm-hmm. and Atlanta in the late 80s and 90s. Um, it was an incredible place to be uh, with all these civil rights legends. Ambassador Andrew Young um, is my godfather. He worked uh, for my father who ran law engineering uh, for many years. And I just... Uh, had fond memories of meeting Congressman Lewis in the late 80s. We spent time together in the 
uh, Centennial Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. And just over the years, we carried on a conversation. And I had written a book with um, Ambassador Andrew Young uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, and the way this book came together was, you know, Congressman Lewis was diagnosed with his, uh, his pa pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to really put together a collection of his thoughts and his last words, his, his, his beliefs for the next generation. And so I worked closely with my editorial team, uh, with the publisher, and we we just interviewed him and, and and transcribed a lot of his thoughts that he would want to, to, to pass on to the next generation. So I've been blessed uh, with some incredible relationships, and I've been trying to sort of share the, the abundance with, with folks in these pages. And while the book titled For a New Generation, uh, and these are Lewis's thoughts, but anyone could absorb this, right? That's right. I mean, <clears throat> Congressman John Lewis, we, we know about um, – his sort of mythic mythological status in, in the civil rights um, pantheon. But what makes, I think this book special is he talks about sort of John Lewis, almost the prophet. I think of like Khalil Gibran's the prophet is mm -hmm. a model for this book. Cause he, there's his testaments on faith, justice um, on what a good day means, but there's also things you're not going to find about anywhere else. But John Lewis, the man, he lived with his cats. Mm -hmm. He loved orange, orange chicken and mm -hmm. Chinese chicken. He um, he was a boy from Troy mm -hmm. and he couldn't stand eating peanuts because he ate peanuts uh, so much as a kid. Um, and so a lot of these, he loved strawberry milkshakes and going antiquing. So he talks about a good day is waking up, going for antiques, dancing. Mm -hmm. And so this is John Lewis. Unlike we've heard him before, he's not I mean, he's talking about all the issues of import, but he's just talking about a man who has just a few weeks left to live. And what he's absorbing and reflecting upon in each in each uh, in every moment. And, and let's pause for a moment. I want to talk about you and your emotions and all of this, if you can. And we're going to talk about John Lewis. But given what you just told our audience about, you know, your lifelong knowing him. My goodness, Andy Young is your godfather. You know, how did you prepare yourself emotionally, Kabir? Because this was a little bit different. I mean, you, you're yeah, you're doing your job, you know, as an author and as an editor and you've got your team. But this is somebody that's, that's personal to you as well. How did you prepare for that? <laughs> With a lot of Kleenex, I have to admit. It was a very emotional experience, Rose. Um, you can hear um, the resoluteness in uh, Congressman Lewis's voice. You can also hear um, he's, he's commenting on things that are small but large. Mm -hmm. You know, how a morning feels, how a day, things we often take for granted until our days are numbered. And so I was very emotional during this time. And when when he passed away, I, of course, broke down and... and um, it took me you know, several weeks to just think about how um, this book could be part of, you know, his legacy and informing the next generation. But it was it was a very trying time. And it still is on this one year anniversary to mm -hmm. think about what he's meant to so many of us. Did he talk to you about how to process all of this with what appeared that he was coming into the last days of his last months of his life? Did he share with you anything in terms of how he wanted you to be able to deal with this? Yeah, I think he he was said, you know, you can imagine John Lewis's voice. Saying, Don't lose hope. Don't give up. Stay the course. Be determined. Um, I think he also he also really wanted to make clear about the commitment to nonviolence, because remember those last few weeks, last few months before he passed away, mm -hmm. there was protests here in Atlanta. Um, and he said, you know, when you commit to nonviolence, you take the higher ground, you take the moral ground. Let's not forget that. And I think that was the the 
kind of the, what he was trying to get to me, get me to put in these pages was that commitment and make sure the young people remember to protest, but to protest nonviolent. Sometimes we, we forget that mm-hmm. in our in our anger and our dismay, but that's that's so very important to what he was um, contending about. And these chapters, not very long or sections, but what was the time? Was this time frame? This was all you collected all this last year. Right. Well, so it was just, yeah, you had to, I mean, yeah, yeah, a handful of conversations in the months or weeks before he passed. And it became more difficult, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I also benefited because I had known him for so long and I know, knew about his thoughts on many of these, these areas. But these are definitely John Lewis's um, comments and, and phrases. And he was working hard to uh, to find the time to, to make this work because he knew this was his he's gone. He's no longer with us. But look what he left us. He mm-hmm. left us his final message of what to do and how to how to carry on. The voice you hear is Kabir Segal. He worked with John Lewis on this book, and he also wrote the afterward. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, um, we're going to get to the, the chapter chapter on forgiveness in a moment. But the order of these chapters, how important was that? Yeah, it was. Um, I'm glad you asked. Sequencing the book um, because obviously our conversations touched about many topics, and they often veered from one to the other. But we obviously wanted to talk about some of the most quintessential John Lewis messages up front. Um, you know, he's he's known for good trouble. He's known for uh, mentorship. He's known for justice and courage. And as we kind of move throughout the book, the topics. Uh, take on some more levity and they're more personable. And he talks about happiness and how he mm-hmm. loved to dance. He mm-hmm. talks about love and um, his, 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 his wife, his deceased wife. And he talks about his art collection, which books he likes to read, how he used to go to the Macy's downtown and, and find ties. And I'm sure there's some listeners who probably ran into him at the mm-hmm. Neiman Marcus or at the, or at the Dillard's. He talks about um, money. We don't think about John Lewis and money. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he made the case that we need to have people like Harriet Tubman on a $20 bill. And this, this is something that economic historians have known uh, quite about. And then, of course, as we move to the end of the book, we talk about death. Mm-hmm. What he thought about death. He said he didn't fear death. Mm-hmm. Talk about his legacy. And we talk about the future. And so it's it's kind of a, you know, uh, we, we try to sandwich the levity with some serious topics. So this is a hopefully very inspiring work. And mm-hmm. I think people will hear hear John Lewis's voice in these pages. I, I agree with that. I don't know if I'm supposed to, but I agree with it because I read it and, and I agree. And I must say the chapter on forgiveness is quite compelling. Quote, when you forgive, you give yourself peace. You deserve this peace. Close quote. And he shares a story of Elwin Wilson. And Kabir, I'll let you take that story from here and tell our listeners what this is all about. Yeah. And. In 1961, uh, John Lewis was one of the first freedom riders, and he was in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And there was a member of, or former member of the KKK named Ellen Wilson, and he was someone who basically attacked uh, John Lewis, beat him up, and hit him on the side of the head. And this was something that was obviously quite traumatic for John Lewis. And fast forward, you know, decades later, it was Ellen Lewis who reached out to John Lewis and said, I would like to come see you at your office in Washington, D.C. And they set up an appointment. Um, Wilson entered and he said, look, I'm uh, I'm sorry about what I did on that day. And will you forgive me? What a moment that was. Mm-hmm. Congressman Lewis, obviously, he said he accepted his apology. His apology. 
they hugged, they cried. Mm-hmm. And this is something John Lewis would say. So, you know, people don't change overnight. Communities, communities don't change overnight. They grow. They grow. And uh, this is something he saw the growth in Mr. Wilson from someone who hated uh, to someone who found remorse and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And Wilson said he wanted to do right before he met his, met maker. his maker. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He mentions Peggy Wallace Kennedy, who has been a guest on this program a couple of years ago when she released a book about her father. Um, and that story in itself, did you did Congressman Lewis talk a lot when he talked about the past and all the things that happened to him? I mean, we're talking about the, the physicality here, the violence. Um, I imagine the same cadence, the same peaceful tone. Did he ever show any other emotion as you all were putting this together? Never seemed like he was angry. Well, he might have been angry at some Congress people, but, but, you know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He didn't show anger. He, and this was a book, obviously, of his uh, his final thoughts. There was uh, an aspect of of finality, some solemnity in his voice. Um, I think he knew um, he didn't have much longer. Mm -hmm. And I think he was just telling those essential stories. And, uh, you know, I think there was a bittersweetness to his voice uh, when we talked. And I think he's uh, a lot of these stories uh, we know about John Lewis. But like you mentioned, the Peggy Wallace Kennedy one. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think hopefully people when they when they read this, when they hear this conversation, they'll think about forgiveness in their own life. That's ultimately what this project's about is. How do you how do we channel more John Lewis in our lives and live a life according to some of his precepts? Forgiveness, love, kindness, um, faith. Um, these are beautiful, in, inspirational words. And I think um, it's a template for us, especially for young leaders, mm-hmm. as, we t- as we assume leadership mantles in Atlanta and beyond. And he talked about the environment. I mean, folks may that may be surprising to some folks. He he dedicates a part a part of this book talking about the environment, saying our planet is in trouble as we continue to release dangerous chemicals into the atmosphere and into the water. So this was on his maybe surprising to some folks. Yeah, he was always um, very vocal on the environment. He always participated in Earth Day parades and messages. Uh, this is one of his signature issues going back to the 90s. Mm-hmm. He would um, talk um, about what was going on in Puerto Rico, Mozambique, the floods in the Midwest. Um, he w- was obviously, he thought climate change was very real. He supported all kinds of efforts to curb carbon emissions. Um, yeah, and this is this is one of the, we think about John Lewis's civil rights, but he has an incredible legacy in the Congress of issues that he held near and dear. Of course, the environment. I also think that um, Something that we don't remember too much is his uh, advocacy for equality uh, in terms of marriage. Mm-hmm. And he was against the Defense of Marriage Act in, in the 90s. And that caused him a lot of grief among his Democrat, among President Clinton, really wanted his vote. And he stuck true to his um, his guns, if you will. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm not going to support this. And he looked some 25, 30 years later at that was arguably the right position. And I think that's more that's the majority position today. So he was always coming out on the side of freedom and equality, uh, no matter what the whatever the temporal politics of the day was. Was there anything that you all weren't able to get into this book? We got most of it. I think I would have loved to get more of his uh, personal, uh, more of his family, obviously. But obviously, he's in, in it. his wife had passed away mm-hmm. and um, I didn't want to pry. We didn't want to pry too much. But um, him as a father, him as, uh, you know, as a son, 
So we got as much as we could given the time and given, given the availability of his time and his uh, health situation. But I think, you know, the more you talk about personal stories, it's, it, you learn so much from those vignettes. There's a lot of in this book. I wish, mm-hmm. of course, as an, as an author, you could, you also, she could get more, um, but these pages will have to, will have to, to do and what a gift they are. And what parts of the book are special or moving for you? I always think about, um, and this sounds a little bit um, maybe off, his, his commentary on on money, which is we think about, you know, he talks about Dr. King when he spoke at the March on Washington. He talked about um, how it was derivative of the March of, uh, of jobs. It was, it was March on Washington for jobs and freedom. And he talked about how jobs are so central to economic progress mm-hmm. and he said, why are we building up uh, other countries and going to war? We should be investing here. And if you look at what's happening in D.C. today, the policies were coming out of Afghanistan and we're trying to pass infrastructure. That is quintessential John Lewis policy right there, mm-hmm. building up the roads, the bridges. The... And so this infrastructure bill that's pending before Congress, I think John Lewis would be would be a big advocate for it. And it's inspiring because that's really concrete as to taking the dream as you, as you will and translating into roads, bridges and opportunities for us to come together and build up our country, which is what I think our country has needed for so long. We, we did talk a little bit more about infrastructure. I didn't, mm-hmm. we didn't put that in, in, in the book as much, but that's, that's something that he felt very, very passionate about. Your last conversation, your last words with him. Do you mind sharing? <laughs> well, I think, I think Congressman John Lewis, it was it wasn't goodbye. I, I didn't I didn't know it would be a, a final conversation is it was we will talk again soon. And he said that he just said we look forward to chatting, look forward to the next conversation and don't lose hope. He said don't lose hope because this was in the midst of the 2020 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protest. He said it may look dark, but don't lose hope and we'll talk again soon. And that was that. In fact, you write in the afterward, quote, Congressman Lewis went through the crucible of racial con- racial conflict and violence. And so in those last months, in those last days uh, that you spent with him, what's your own personal reflection, I guess, in the time you had with him? Well, my personal reflection is to carry on his legacy in that I can't wait to register people to vote. I can't wait to get out there and vote. I can't wait to do what I can to make sure that the next um, bevy of leaders in Atlanta and, and beyond reflect his values. And, you know, I, I like to think that he was smiling from heaven when John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, both um, close associates of him, turned Georgia, but also turned the Senate. And we got to use that power to create the world he would want us to live in. And that means um, just voting rights. So if we we're going to talk about John Lewis is one thing, but we have to sort of uh, carry on his legacy by making sure all Americans can enjoy the right and privilege to vote. And that's uh, one of the, the causes I will be fighting for in the in the days, weeks, months and years ahead. And it's been uh, now a little bit over a year uh, since his death. And as I mentioned, coming into this program, uh, citywide uh, celebration is going to take place next Friday. We we know that he wants reflections for a new generation to go to the new generation. How are you all going to make sure it gets to that young generation? You know, and I love our young kids. I do some of them, but they they on the phone more than they are. In it, but not all of them. So how do we make sure that kids get this book? Yeah. What well, can we do to make sure? <laughs> many different ways. There's an audiobook version, too, which Don Cheadle 
read, mm-hmm. which is fun. So if you're a Don Cheadle fan, please check out the book. But beyond that, we're going to be speaking at schools and libraries. And and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to turn down an opportunity to speak about this book and, and the life and legacy of John Lewis. We're all over Twitter. We're going get, to get on TikTok and, and share this. So we're out there. And, and of course, talking to you, Rose, thanks for the opportunity to share this with um, with all your listeners. And uh, you're, you're obviously a great, I think, civic leader to our community as well. So I appreciate you us helping us share the life and legacy of John Lewis with the great city of Atlanta. I do want to share my John Lewis story because everybody has a John Lewis story. So say I saw him at Kroger. I saw him at Home Depot. So it is it is the National Black Arts Festival. It's a gala you know, you got to get all fancy. Yes, I had on a dress and some heels. Go figure. And uh, it was to honor Ruby D. you know, the legendary Ruby D. And so they encouraged people to wear red. And so my conversation with John Lewis was all about our favorite Ruby D. movies and what she meant. That's my John Lewis story. <laughs> you know, it has nothing yeah. to, had nothing to do with politics. We just talked about how we both loved Ruby D, you took a picture, you know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's great. You know, that, that I, I think, you know, uh, sums up again just the type of person that he was. The book is Carry On Reflections for a New Generation. Best selling author himself, Kabira Segal, worked with Lewis on the book and also wrote the afterword. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. Thank you, Rose. Take care now. it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, you all know to always send me your thoughts on today's program or any other. Yes, send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look or any other WABE podcast wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. 
New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.